It is a pleasure to be here. Glad to be in, in, in Pennsylvania where you still have snow on the ground. Uh, I'm originally from South Louisiana. We don't uh, do snow. Uh, it's, 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 it's not fun for us. I was glad to see it come and go in southern Illinois. Um, but uh, it is good to be here. And I cannot say Lancaster right, so just forgive me for that. All right? Uh, the passage I'm going to be coming from, uh, or teaching from, over these three sessions is Romans 8, 26 and 27. We're just going to hang out there for a while and, and draw out some implications there. But uh, let's hear God's Word. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once again. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Jesus, our rock and our near kinsman. Amen. Now, what's the first characteristic you think of when you hear Reformed or Presbyterian, if the case, as the case may be? My guess is that it has something to do with the intellect, heavy theology, Calvinism, and fighting over all the details of who is the most Reformed. We're not generally thought of as being strong in the area of prayer. In fact, if it's even on the list, it's probably way down the list. It's not to say that we don't pray, we do. However, it's not thought of as one of our strongest characteristics in our life together. All anyone would need for the evidence is to see what we do together the most. If we're studying something, people tend to show up, at least for a while. If we have a party, people will show up. If we're called to prayer, it's not so much. This may be for a number of reasons. It, may, it, it could be unavoidable providential hindrances. It could also be that we just don't see the importance of gathering together just for prayer. People will say, it's just a prayer meeting. We don't have to really go. Romans 8, is in our little corner of the Christian church, is known most of all for the golden chain of salvation. In Romans 8, 29 to 30, there is a veritable playground for theology nerds concerning predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. And that's all certainly there to one degree or another, but it is within the context of assurance that the groans that we offer up in prayer uh, to be freed from this slavery of corruption with the creation will be answered. My talks will be dealing with the activity of prayer, using Romans 8, 26 and 27 as our passage for study and teasing out those implications, as I mentioned. God's house, His temple, we hear in Isaiah 56, and echoed by Jesus himself when he cleansed the temple, is called a house of prayer. We, brothers and sisters, are the temple of God, which means that we are a house of prayer. Prayer is not merely one activity amongst many in the church. Prayer defines who we are. It permeates every bit of our existence as Christians. You might say that we are living, walking, breathing prayers. Prayer is not peripheral. Now, in this first meditation, I want to answer one question, and that is, what is prayer? As Christians, we all instinctively know what prayer is. The youngest of our children pray. It is an aspect of the Christian life that we never grow out of, but we grow more and more into. 
Prayer is like an ocean. Small children can appreciate and enjoy it. Sitting on the beach, watching the waves splashing in the water. But there's also more there than the seasoned marine biologist can explore and comprehend. His appreciation of the ocean deepens with knowledge and being in it day after day, but he's still enjoying the very same ocean as the child. Prayer is basic to the Christian life. It matters not your maturity level or, the level or, or your level of knowledge. We all enjoy the privilege of prayer where God meets us in the shallow waters of the beach or in the deepest parts of the ocean. What I want to do is wade out into the water and understand just a little bit better what this is that defines our lives and what is going on in prayer. We could approach the answer to this from a number of different passages in scriptures, but we're going to explore this passage in Romans 8. And we discover in our passage that there is a Trinitarian shape to prayer, which Paul introduces to us through an emphasis on the Spirit's work in prayer. As throughout all of Romans 8, the Spirit is prominent in this passage. Paul seems to be describing here what he mentions elsewhere in something of a shorthand as praying in the Spirit. For example, in Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Jude speaks about it too in Jude 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Spirit isn't judged by emotional experience. There are many people who have emotional experiences in prayer to false gods or who think that they are praying to the true God but are living contrary to the Spirit, and that is not praying in the Spirit. This is not to say that emotion is uninvolved in prayer. We can't read this passage in Romans 8 and think that at all. We are groaning with the creation, and the Spirit is groaning with us. And this groaning is emotional. And I know Reformed folks sometimes have a hard time with those emotions, but the fact is they are there. But this groaning is not raw, uninformed, or misinformed emotion. It is the groaning of those who know and desire God's purpose for the entirety of creation and are longing for it. It is emotion in line with God's own revealed desires. And while we're here, I will answer another question that comes up in this passage and is related to the Spirit. Are these wordless groanings or inexpressible groanings some type of tongues, a spirit prayer language? The short answer is no. Even if you were to believe that the Spirit gives some type of prayer language, that is some expression of the gift of tongues, and I don't believe He does, it would be a language. 1 Corinthians 14, we don't have time to get into all that, but uh, it, that doesn't speak of a private prayer language either, and uh, we could maybe deal with that in question and answers if we need to. But Paul's words here are literally wordless groanings. There are no words expressed, so there is no, there is no tongue, there is no prayer language. I believe Paul is speaking about those desires that are wrapped up in pain, longing, and anticipation that cannot be put into words. They are our and the Spirit's deepest heart's desires that are wrapped up in this pain and longing and anticipation, that we be free from this corruption and for all things in the world to be put right. They are wordless prayers. There's going to be a lot of overlap. There's going to be some overlap in our in our in our in my talks, 
uh, and, and you'll hear this again, but have you ever been in a situation in which the pain was so deep and your longing for God to change things was so acute? However, you just didn't know exactly what changes needed to be made. You didn't know what to pray. It was just a cloud of inarticulate sorrow and longing flooding your soul. And when you tried to pray, nothing came out. I believe that's more of what Paul is talking about. Though he's referring to a more common experience than we may even realize. Praying in the Spirit is not judged solely by emotion. And it is not praying with some special gift of tongues. Some prayer language. Now let's turn to what it is. Praying in the Spirit is fellowship in Trinitarian life. One of the Spirit's main activities is creating bonds or relationships. He's been doing this forever, literally, (laughs) forever. This is His activity in the life of the Trinity in eternity. We read in the Scriptures that He is the Spirit of God the Father, as well as the Spirit of the Son and of Christ. The Spirit belongs to both the Father and the Son. Our early church fathers described the Spirit as the bond of love between the Father and the Son. In the Trinitarian relationship described in terms of love, the Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, and the Spirit is the bond of love that binds them together. We understand His eternal ministry in the Trinity because we hear of His work with us. His work with us images His eternal ministry. He creates bonds. He creates relationships between us and God as well as one another. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit creates the bond with the body of Christ through baptism according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. The spirit is the one who puts the body of Christ together. Whether you're talking about the person of Christ in the womb, where the spirit hovers over Mary and puts the body of Christ together there in Luke 135, or the body of Christ, the church in 1 Corinthians 12. The Spirit puts things and people in relationship with one another, puts everything right. The Spirit creates a relationship between us and the Father and in the Son. Praying in the Spirit has a definite Trinitarian shape to it. In Ephesians 2.18, Paul describes prayer in this way. For through Him, that is through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one Spirit to the Father. While we may pray to the Son or the Spirit, the biblical model of prayer is that we pray to the Father in the Son by the Spirit. The Spirit creates a relationship between us and the Son. And having the Spirit of the Son, then we can call God Father. And Paul talked about that earlier in Romans 8, 15. It is only because we are in Christ or in the Son that we have this privilege of calling God Father. However, because we are in the Son, we are joining with Jesus in calling God Father. God is our Father and Jesus our older brother. We share sonship with Jesus. This is why Paul can say that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ in Romans 8.17. This is a privilege that we have only because of our union with Christ Jesus. 
The Spirit who creates this relationship between us and the Father in the Son is the one who causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, as Paul talks about in Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4. He is the Spirit of Sonship. He binds the Son, He binds the sons to the Father. This is echoed, I said, as I said in Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And by the Spirit, we pray in Jesus and with Jesus. We share Jesus' own life with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus is praying to the Father like He did while He was on earth. He ever lives now in His resurrected existence to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, He joins us in worship, singing psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, praising the name of His Father. And so, so says the psalm that the writer of Hebrews puts on the lips of the Son, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Our worship, which is nothing more than a prayer service, is participation in the divine conversation. We have entered into the divine and eternal conversation of Father, Son, and Spirit. We are joining with Jesus by the Spirit to praise the Father. And the Father is speaking to us by the Spirit through His Son, sharing His gifts with us. To pray in the Spirit, then, is entering into fellowship with the Trinity. The Spirit brings us into this divine conversation that has been going on forever. The Father, Son, and Spirit have been talking with one another forever. The fact, the, the fact that the second member of the Godhead is the Word, who eternally dwells face to face with the Father, speaks to this divine conversation. In Jesus' own praying, for example, in John 17, we get a glimpse into this ongoing conversation between the Father and the Son. As we have been given the Spirit of God, who is also the Spirit of Christ, as I mentioned, To pray in the Spirit is to share that conversation with Jesus and the Father. Prayer is not simply talking to God as if He's some distant, possibly aloof deity. That's the way pagans view their gods. Their gods are far off. The relationship is distant at best. The gods have their life and we have ours. At points, our lives intersect over a great span, connected by words and sacrifices of some sort. Even Christians sometimes think it this way about when they come to church. Is that we come to church, we pray, and then we leave, and somehow we leave God there. Now, I know that's, that's, that's not a conscious thought of a lot of people, but that's almost the way we live. But that's not a biblical picture of prayer in our relationship with God. We do talk to God, but we are within the divine family as we do so. We are in Christ. You can't get closer to God than that. Being in Christ by the Spirit means that, the, that, that prayer is sharing that life with God. So Paul reflects this richness of prayers. He speaks of the prayer's groans, excuse me, of the Spirit's groans in taking up our wordless prayers and interceding for us literally according to God, even though the ESV translates that according to the will of God. Paul tells us that we don't know what to pray for as we ought. He is not saying you don't know how to pray. Jesus taught us how to pray. We have a whole book of prayer in the Scriptures, the Psalms. He is saying that we don't know what to pray for exactly 
in the various situations of suffering that we experience as we groan with the creation, waiting for our redemption. We don't understand how all these things are working together for our good. We can only trust God that they do so. Like the disciples with the death of Jesus, we don't understand when we are in a situation how God can possibly bring this out for good. What do you pray for in that situation? Generally, we resort to praying for immediate deliverance out of our situation. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus himself did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't know what to pray at times, but we are not alone in our praying. The triune God is not watching us to see if we get the petitions right. He is participating with us through the Spirit. The Spirit takes up our groans, joining us in them, and the Father, the searcher of hearts, understands the Spirit because He prays according to God. And again, this is usually translated according to the will of God. However, if Paul had wanted to say that, he would have. This is a much richer phrase. N.T. Wright explains, this hints of something deeper than merely praying in the way God wants or approves. God's own life, love, and energy are involved in the process. The Christian, precisely at the point of weakness and uncertainty, of inability and struggle, becomes the place at which the triune God is revealed in person. He prays according to God. The Spirit has created this relationship with the Father in the Son, joining us to the divine family, giving us a seat at the feasting table, and calls us to join in the family conversation about what's going on in the world. Praying in the Spirit is praying in relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But praying in the Spirit also means praying with all those who share in this relationship. The Spirit creates a bond between us and the Father in the Son and with all those who call God Father in the Son. When Jesus taught His disciples to pray in Matthew 6, He taught them to pray, Our Father, not my Father, although the second is perfectly legitimate. Whenever we pray, we must understand ourselves in union with the rest of the church, the body of Christ. Praying in the Spirit is reflected this way in the opening words of Revelation. The Apostle John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day in Revelation 1.10. Does that mean John's having an an ecstatic experience. Some people believe after reading Revelation that that's exactly what's happening. He's kind of, you know, on some kind of uh, spiritual trip or something, and he's seeing all these types of things. It doesn't, though. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that. It means that he was in a worship service. What the rest of Revelation reveals is the reality that is happening when we gather as the people of God. And this is what it means to be in the Spirit. It's joined to heaven and joined with the rest of the saint. The Spirit unites us with one another on earth and with God and the saints in heaven. That's what it means to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Praying in the Spirit includes being where God called us to be as His people, and it means praying there. The Spirit dwells in the temple of God. The temple is the dwelling place of the Spirit The temple of God is never more present on earth than when saints are gathered together to pray. We are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.22, a house of the Spirit. 
This doesn't mean that we can't pray in the Spirit apart from the gathered worship of God's people. But our individual and family praying is always to be understood in the context of the larger church. Prayer concerns relationships. Relationships with God, the church, and the world around us. All of our prayers are ministries of, to, and for the church. The Spirit is concerned about fitting our lives into the larger plan of God, making us agents of His and creating good, peaceful, righteous relationships in the world. Praying in the Spirit is praying with the rest of the church, whether gathered together or separated. Because the Spirit creates these bonds of peace between us, when we refuse to live at peace with one another through bitterness or unforgiveness, our prayers will not be heard. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, if you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. What's happening when when you do that? We are grieving the Spirit. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. We are grieving the Spirit. You are not praying in the Spirit if you're holding bitterness or unforgiveness because that is contrary to the life of the family of God. God doesn't live that way, so your prayers are not a part of His divine conversation. They bring ugliness. They bring disharmony. And that is walking contrary to the Spirit, is not praying in the Spirit. Prayer, therefore, is not an attempt to try to coax God down here to do something as if He's this distant deity who only interacts with us in the world from afar. Prayer is this deep participation in the life of God Himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. And this participation requires that we be in harmony with God and in harmony with everyone with whom God is in harmony. That is His faithful family. That is walking, that is praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit means that we fellowship in the life of the triune God. Fellowshipping with the triune God, participating in His life, has deep implications that are evidenced in our prayer life. This brings us to the second aspect of praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is sharing the desires of the Spirit. Participation in the life of our triune God goes to the matters of our hearts. What do we desire? In our Romans passage, we hear Paul talking about our groans and the groans of the Spirit. There's a harmony between these groans. In other words, the Spirit is taking up our groans because somehow they are consistent with His own desires. Because He creates the relationship with the Father in the Son, they are actually His desires being revealed in us and for us. The love of God is poured out in our hearts, Paul says in Romans 5.5, by the Spirit. He is the one who makes us yearn for the Father, crying out, Abba, Father. Our love for the Father and His purposes are generated by the Spirit. Therefore, our groans are a reflection of what the Spirit Himself wants. When you're loving God, and you're loving what God loves, and praying to that end, you're praying in the Spirit. For without the Spirit, you wouldn't love what God loves. In this context, we are groaning. What we are groaning for is our hope 
of glory. There's a lot to be explored there. And Paul does that to a great degree in the middle section of his letter to the Romans. But, and, and so he's kind of, he, he's basing what he says here on what he's already said. And we can't explore all of Romans, but in this context, we're groaning for our hope of glory. That glory from which we fell short. Remember in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And recovery or re- redemption, salvation, is restoring us to that hope of glory, that glory that God intended from the beginning. What is this? Well, we have been promised and we desire the world to be set right. It's not just about escaping. It's not just about getting out of this world. It's not about, uh, it's not about just going to heaven when we die. This means we want the world to be set right. We want creation to be put back in order. This means that God's son or his sons are ruling the creation. They have taken dominion over the creation as God intended from the beginning. And everything is operating according to the righteousness of God. The bondage of corruption of sin is gone because our, because our bodies have been redeemed in resurrection. It's our hope of glory. The creation is ordered in relationships of peace between God and man, man and man, man and animals, and man with non-animated creation. Everything is just right. Heaven and earth are in harmony as God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying in the Spirit means that we share the desires for the will of God done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see the world put right. And our groans, our deepest longings for this are expressed in prayer. The Spirit desires that the Father and the Son be glorified. When we pray for this, we are praying in the Spirit. The Spirit desires that relationships be made right. When we pray for this, we are praying in the Spirit. So how do we know when we're sharing the desires of the Spirit in prayer? When our prayers line up with what the Spirit has revealed to us in Christ through the Scriptures. We do not know how God is working in every situation in life. This is why we don't know what to pray exactly in every situation as mentioned earlier. But we know, for instance, that ultimately God's plan is to eliminate suffering. When we pray for people to be freed from suffering, we are praying in line with the Spirit's desires. God may work it out in a totally unexpected way, but we are praying in line with the Spirit. When we pray that sin and sinners be cut off from working their evil deeds and their their plans be frustrated, we are praying in the Spirit. Sometimes God allows sin to take its course. He allowed it in the death of his own son. He is working through those situations to be sure, but we are perfectly in line with the Spirit when we pray for sin and sinners to be cut off. The Spirit doesn't speak with two contradictory voices, one through the Scriptures and one that you hear in your own heart. You need to watch for this hearing from God business. I prayed about it in the church is sometimes the trump card to shut down conversation about unwise or sinful choices. It's amazing how many times God confirms our stupid, stubborn choices in prayer. (laughs) And as a pastor now for over 30 years, you've heard about it. It's kind of like 
don't worry, I've prayed about this, Pastor. Oh, did God speak to you? Did he say something? Did he write something in the sky? Well, he, you know, I just know it in my heart. Well, it's contrary to the scripture right here. <laughs> well, I, but I, I really believe this. Well, it doesn't really matter. And sometimes people use this. You're, you're, uh, this I prayed about it as kind of that, okay, you can stop talking now. You can stop giving me counsel, okay? Or an excuse not to do something that they ought to. You're, you're praying about it doesn't mean that you have the right uh, you have the right answer and may, and may now speak with absolute authority about what ought to be done. God's Spirit works through the Scriptures and through godly counsels of others to teach you His will. And yes, He does work through prayer, but He's not, he's not talking to you. Our hearts, and, and that is directly, our hearts and minds are clouded with our own sins and weaknesses. We will deceive ourselves into believing that we heard from God on a matter that is contrary to His Word. And again, I've watched over these 30 years of ministering in the church, people rationalizing all sorts of sin and unwise decisions by, by just claiming that they've prayed about it. But imagine, imagine your child coming to you, parents, and saying, I know you told me to clean my room, but I've prayed about it. And I've concluded that this is not the will of God for my life at this particular time. Yeah, and that's a <laughs> very spiritual child, you would think, Right. Well, the same thing happens in the church all the time with members in relationship, pastors and elder. No matter what God has revealed about obeying those who have rule over you, someone has prayed about it. And they've decided that the scriptures don't apply to them. And you ought to pray about things, of course, but praying in the spirit means that you're praying in harmony with the spirit inspired scriptures, as well as in harmony with the counsel of spirit filled people. Praying in the Spirit doesn't mean that the Spirit is somehow giving you new revelation or giving you even specific direction in prayer, as if you have the Urim and Thummim of the high priest and you can cast those lots and you can find out exactly what God is going to say. In fact, this passage in Romans practically says that He doesn't work that way. Note what He says. The Spirit doesn't give you words where you don't have any, so you'll know exactly what to pray. The Spirit takes your wordless prayers and translates them to the Father who knows how to interpret them. I'll talk more about that next time. So be careful of thinking that the Spirit is talking to you in prayer. That could be the tacos you ate the night before, so you want to be careful. And be especially careful if you're trying to use that to shut down wise counsel from your brothers and sisters, or worse, disobey the direct command of Scripture. Praying in the Spirit means that your will is lined up with His. You love what He loves, and consequently you pray and work for what He wants. It means that you will listen to Him through others who also have the Spirit. The Spirit's presence in our prayers creates a relationship with the triune God. And all of His people in which we share, share common loves. And the last aspect of praying in the Spirit that I want to cover in this meditation is that praying in the Spirit is praying with the power of the Spirit. When the Bible speaks of the Spirit, the emphasis is not so much on the immaterial nature of the Spirit, but rather His power. As Sinclair Ferguson put it, the Hebrew word could almost be translated the violence of God. To pray in the Spirit means that the power of the Spirit is joining us 
in prayer. The Spirit of God that hovered over the face of the original creation, energizing, energizing the Word of God to form and fill the creation. The Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit in whom we pray and who is praying with us and for us. The fact that the Spirit is present in our prayers, even our wordless groanings, means that the power of God is working in and through our prayers to change things in the world. Prayer that is in concert with the Word of God in our lives, that is praying in Jesus' name, is energized by the Spirit to make effective the purposes of God in the world. We don't have this wispy hope in prayer. Because we have the Spirit present and praying with us, we can be confident that the power of God is operating at that point. We will not always see how He operates, but we can be assured that He is. This doesn't mean that He can be manipulated as as if He's some kind of genie who must give us three wishes in prayer. That that His power is, uh, is at our disposal in an unqualified fashion. It isn't. The divine family doesn't operate in a way that uses the other members to create some kind of personal comfort without regard for others. Attempting to use the power of the Spirit in this way is not prayer in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit means that in line with the Spirit's desires, you want to see His power used to set things right, to vindicate the righteous, to condemn the wicked. When we pray in the Spirit, particularly When we are gathered for worship, things are happening that we just can't see. But because we can't see them doesn't mean that they aren't happening. God has already shown us the power that comes and is exercised through prayer in the Spirit in the book of Revelation. We see it through John's eyes in Revelation 8 when we hear this. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Our prayer in the Spirit, when we join the divine conversation and the Spirit is with us, the Spirit is shaking up the world. God uses our prayers to affect change in the world, moving His purposes ever forward. So brothers and sisters, you have the Spirit of Christ. And having the Spirit, you are urged and empowered by Him to pray. Each person baptized into the triune name of God is called into this is called into this life of prayer god has called you in concert with all of his saints to join him in this life to share his joys his sorrows his loves his hatred his anger his purpose your god brought you into his family because he loves you and desires for you to share this life with him and he really loves it He really loves it when all of his family gathers together to share this life with him and with one another. Psalm 87, 2 says that Yahweh loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. That is, he loves it when his people gathered as his family more than he loves just individual households and individuals scattered all over the place. 
He loves to see us gathered together. Even though we must discipline ourselves to pray both individually, as families, and corporately, prayer should not be approached as some bald duty to some distant God, going through motions and routines, even though we do have forms, and I use forms, very liturgical. But when you love someone, when there's this deep bond between you and your lives are wrapped up with one another, you want to be with that person. You want conversation. You may even comfortably sit in silence where there are no words, where sometimes you don't have words. The call to prayer is a call to a life of love with the Father in the Son through the power of the Spirit. The evidence of His activity in your life is that you yearn for this. You groan for this. Prayer is not something that you do merely when you get in trouble and need to be bailed out. It is this ceaseless exchange of love between you and your Father in the Son. If we're not wanting to pray or asking, is, is that really necessary? What is the minimal amount I need to do to stay in good with God? Then we need to examine ourselves as to what or who has the affection of our hearts above God Himself. Do you long to pray? Do you long like the psalmist to be with the people of God to pray? If not, if other affections have your heart, you need to pray and begin to discipline yourself to cultivate that love for God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I'll take some time now, if Greg wants me to, to answer any questions, or refer questions to him to answer. (laughs) Okay. Right. It's a good, good question. <laughs> yes. Um. <laughs> well, um, first of all, I mean, I think it does go to the, the nature of revelation and whether or not re- revelation is closed. Um, and I do believe that uh, it is. I think Paul talked about that in, in 1 Corinthians. Um, I think he anticipated that end where um, revelation would be closed and th- those gifts of prophecy. And tongues, tongues is simply kind of a subset of prophecy. And so um, uh, for, used for specific purposes, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, to be assigned to unbelievers. Uh, so it had a specific uh, 
really not only for the conversion, but for the condemnation of the Jews. Uh, conversion of the Gentiles, but the condemnation of the Jews. And so it was a subset of prophecy and therefore had to be interpreted when it was uh, in the congregation. And prophecy, and that's why he says prophecy is preferred uh, in, when you're in the congregation. But once the, once the scriptures are complete, then there is no gift of prophecy. There is no, this is, this is ended. I think he anticipates that, and uh, I believe he anticipates that in 1 Corinthians 13, where he says that when the perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away with. And I, I, I think when this is done, or when the scriptures were complete, it was done. That, that's kind of the basis. If that is the basis, if that is the, if that is the fact then um, any kind of prophecy, any kind of, any kind of word from God uh, that w- you could say with the declaration, this is the authority of God upon your life, would be out of line. Because that, that means it would be equivalent to Scripture in some way. And I know uh, there's a systematic theologian named Wayne Grudem. He's reformed um, in his... Uh, uh, doctrine of salvation, individual salvation. <laughs> uh, but he also believes in these continuing, uh, continuing prophecies, that there are lesser prophecies in Agabus. It shows that, you know, he didn't have, uh, he didn't have the perfect word of God, but he was still a prophet and all this. He goes through a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but it's, uh, it's dancing around a, a, an issue that if you have a word from God, uh, that comes with a lot of authority. I mean, that, um, <laughs> you're going to, and especially, and you see a lot of these guys today, especially, uh, I've seen some things recently about all these prophets and prophetesses uh, prophesying that Trump would remain president. Um, they've had to go back and adjust a bit. But, or, or maybe it's not over yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> March the 4th, right? Uh, I, I think is what it is. Uh, it's, it's not over yet. Of course, I'm from the South, too, and it's kind of like the war's not over yet. Um, uh, so, so I completely understand. Uh, anyway, uh, I, that, I would say, I would simply answer somebody like that is that uh, you, can't, you cannot speak with that type of authority directly from God. Uh, you don't, you're not an apostle. You're not a prophet in, uh, in the biblical sense. And so therefore you, you don't have that authority. Uh, that, that is a, it's somebody to believe that that is a load to carry. Um, if you think you're disobeying God by not doing what this person told you when he prophesied over your life to pastorally, it's a it's an absolute mess. Um, but anyway, uh, any more thoughts? On, yeah. Just a practical question. For children, um, do you have any suggestions for developing, kind of transitioning from more petitionary prayer, prayer that, that we do parents with them, to developing in that conversational prayer life? Yeah, I, I, um, in fact, I think in my, it's in my third talk tomorrow morning that I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, I, 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 I think it's, I think it's good like what you're doing. Um, when you teach them forms of prayer, uh, I'll mention, 
Uh, some, many of you are probably familiar with the ACTS method, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And you give them these basics, these fundamentals. Uh, it's kind of like teaching them uh, to dribble a basketball. They have to learn those fundamentals. Uh, but then as they practice on their own, they begin to add to things and, and they begin to develop things on their own. Uh, I did that personally. I'll um, talk, you about, talk to you about what, I, what I've done. This is not a, a pattern for everybody. It's not a word from God for you to do. Um, <laughs> but I, I started years ago, I took the Book of Common Prayer uh, 1662 edition, I, old school. Yeah, old school. I, I, yeah, and uh, not the other abominations that came in 1663. Uh, no, I'm joking. Uh, anyway, I took the Book of Common Prayer and I used those daily offices, the daily morning prayer especially, and I began praying through that. Over the years, um, I have maintained many of those prayers in my in my daily prayer, and I still use those today, but they have, they have morphed, they've developed, they've matured so that I can, so that I'm praying for different things at different times. And so it's kind of like learning the fundamentals, continue to teach them the fundamentals, and then as they grow in the scriptures and as they mature, they will, um, they will begin to develop those things, I, I think. Um, as they just live in the culture of the church and with the family. And, um, and, and of course, you're always there to ask questions, uh, you, you know, disciple and coach them through when they say, oh, you know, I really want to pray. How do you pray about this or something like that? So I, I think it's uh, organic in, in a lot of ways and not kind of a method. So, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, place, place in prayer. I, um, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to discount place of prayer is, is because it's a, um, we all have to be in a place <laughs> and, and, and there are, there are spaces, there are spaces that I think are, are good, good for us, not required, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. They're not required, but they're good for us. Uh, having a building that is dedicated to prayer, which is what this building is, is dedicated to prayer. It's why we meet here um, and why things generally in architecture and in churches are pointing upwards all the time. Um, and, and those types of things 
aid us in prayer. Those are good things. But praying with people, I think, is, uh, is vital to us. And I think during COVID situation, we understood that a lot better, is that there, there is a difference. There's one thing about me praying, about my family praying, but as I mentioned in Psalms, in Psalm 87, God loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Judah. He, he loves it when we gather together and there form up the temple, uh, temple of God. And so there is a difference in those different types of prayer. All of them are necessary, but there, there are differences. So I'm not meeting with God in the same way in the woods as I am when I'm with the people of God on the Lord's day. Um, it's not to say that I'm not meeting with God in the woods when I pray, uh, but it is, it is different. It is different. Uh, it is different like Daniel being in exile, praying toward Jerusalem, than it is being in the temple, longing to be in the temple. So there was a difference between being gathered with the people of God in Jerusalem and praying out of his, by his window in, in, in Babylon. So there, uh, th- now the nature of that difference is, um, I, I don't know if I can explain that completely, but it is, it is very different. God's people, it, it is spiritual in the sense, not of immaterial, but the spirit, the spirit moves in between us as people, as his, as his people, binding us together. And the more people, the more activity, the more energy. Um, that's, that's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat introvertish, and I understand when I'm with people a lot, it's a lot of energy, okay? There, and you, you feel energy when you're with people. Uh, I'm an LSU football fan. I've been in Tiger Stadium a number of times. When you get with 100,000 people, cheering you say well that's not a spiritual experience well it it may be a perversion of a spiritual experience but but when you're or you're a Steelers fan or whatever uh there's this energy that's in the crowd that you don't get when you're outside of that crowd okay that's the nature of being human that's the nature of the spirit working in between us um and so gathered together is much more powerful in that way uh, than it is individually. I think we have to quit, right? Uh, yeah, well, let's, let's take a short break. Yeah, short break. It is a bit, it, that's a huge, it, it is, it is a huge difference. We, we went and I talked to Greg about this too. And I know y'all have done some of that when, uh, the whole shut, all the lockdowns went, went into effect last year. And we went online service for about six weeks, trying to figure out what we were going to do. Um, man, the difference in people understanding the difference between being there live and people were zooming in with one another, you know, trying to get that kind of, uh, togetherness, but it was no, it wasn't. It wasn't the same. Uh, and so you just, you couldn't do it. You had to, you had to make do 
like Daniel in Babylon. You had to make do, but uh, it is not the same. And so being here and listening to this kind of stuff on, at 9 o'clock on Saturday morning, it's pretty heavy. I hope you have a lot of coffee. All right. All right. We'll take a little break.